Ayer nació un caracol, un caracol, un caracol, un caracol de guerra. Hello and welcome to the Zapatista podcast, lessons and stories from Chiapas. This podcast is brought to you by the Galway Feminist Collective and Promedios Mexico. This podcast series gives a general introduction to the Zapatista movement of Mexico to those not so familiar with their struggle in the light of their first European tour this summer 2021. We want to give folks in Ireland and Europe an insight into the Zapatistas through interviews with some of those who have worked closely with movement. A quarter of a century on, after the Zapatista uprising of 1994, we want to retrace some of the steps that their struggle has taken on its long and steady road to autonomy, sharing their learnings and obstacles, but above all their determination and creativity to make other worlds a reality. Zapatistas are a Mexican revolutionary indigenous movement that govern many autonomous zones over an extensive region within Chiapas, the southernmost state of Mexico. Zapatistas don't like to be pigeonholed, but they are most certainly anti-capitalist and anti-patriarchal. Some say they are libertarian socialists, yet they have anarchists and communists, Catholics and atheists among them. They practice direct democracy and traditional indigenous ways of organizing. On January 1st, 1994, the day NAFTA came into effect, which is the North American Free Trade Agreement signed by the US, Mexico and Canada, Zapatista women and men led an uprising to halt the ever-increasing death grip of colonialism and its legacy, which has been centuries of poverty and inequality, racism and exploitation. Following the uprising and broken accords by the Mexican government, Zapatistas turned to creating their own autonomy and practicing self-determination. This summer 2021, a delegation of Zapatistas and representatives from various indigenous groups in Mexico are traveling in Europe as part of a world tour. Their European tour coincides with the 500 year anniversary of the fall of Tenochtitlan, present day Mexico City. From July to October, the delegation is meeting with activists throughout Europe. The meetings are meant to horizontally strengthen and multiply the resistances in each place. Once again, the Zapatistas will appeal to our creative consciousness, to see past the reality that Europe and the minority world lives, and to open our eyes to how the majority world survives. The first Zapatista representatives have already disembarked in Spain. Among them, a transgendered woman is helping unfold a massive campaign, urging Europe to wake up to a new dawn and to create other worlds together, beyond capitalism. Women's Revolutionary Law Women, regardless of their race, creed, colour or political affiliation, have the right to participate in the revolutionary struggle in any way that their desire and capacity determine. Women have the right to work and receive a just salary. Women have the right to decide the number of children they have and care for. Women have the right to participate in the matters of the community and have charge if they are free and democratically elected. Women and their children have the right to primary attention in their health and nutrition. Women have the right to education. 
Women have the right to choose their partner and are not obliged to enter into marriage. Women have the right to be free of violence from both relatives and strangers. Rape and attempted rape will be severely punished. Women will be able to occupy positions of leadership in the organisation and hold military ranks in the Revolutionary Armed Forces. Women will have all the rights and obligations which the revolutionary laws and regulations give. Hello, I'm Nancy Serrano. Welcome to the Zapatista podcast, Stories and Lessons from Chiapas. Let's begin this episode on the Zapatista women's movement with an excerpt from the book, The Inconvenient Dead, written by Subcomandante Marcos. Chapter 1. Sometimes it takes more than 500 years. Subcomandante Marcos didn't show me the document, but he did tell me what the case was about. A woman had disappeared. She was the wife of the local Zapatista leader, and it was my job to investigate if she was really missing. I only had three days to find her. So I saddled the mule, and that same afternoon, I headed to Entreceros, the town where the woman named Maria had disappeared. Upon arriving in the town, I talked to her husband, Henero. He told me she left for firewood, but never returned. That was about three weeks ago. Do you know where she might have gone? I asked. He said, no, perhaps she's been kidnapped by the army or the paramilitaries, or maybe she's already dead. Now who is going to make my puzzle and tortilla for me? Who's going to take care of the children? I went to the stream where the women do their wash, and there I found Eolokia. She told me that before Maria had disappeared, she had stopped going to the women's cooperative meetings. When Eolokia asked Maria why she no longer was going to the meetings, Maria told her, they cannot tell me what to do. And she didn't say anything else because Henero had arrived. I asked Eolokia if perhaps Maria had gotten lost in the mountains. Eolokia said, <laughs> How could she get lost? She knows all the nooks and crannies. At dawn, it was raining, so I borrowed a plastic sheet from my friend Umberto. I left him the loaded mule and went to La Realidad. Upon arriving, I asked to speak to the Zapatista Regional Council. I asked the council for information on women's groups in the communities. They handed me a list. It took a long time to go through it. Nothing jumped out at me. I didn't even know what I was looking for, but I knew I would when I found it. On that list there are all the women's collectives, one of the council members told me. Except that one that's being formed, said another council member. Yes, but it's in a new region that is being integrated. They still do not have autonomous municipality. But the women are already organizing collectively, said the first council member. Yes, it is us women who first organize ourselves. If our struggle is taking long time, it's because of the men, said the only woman on the council. The men said nothing. I asked, where exactly is that group that is being formed? It's in the Seba region, in the town of Tres Cruces, said the woman. 
I borrowed a mare and travelled to Tres Cruzes. On the way there, it got dark and the mare became frightened by any shadow. So I left her at a ranch and continued by foot. The second day was almost over, so I had to hurry. I arrived in the town and went to the local leader and introduced myself. I asked him how the collectives were doing. He told me that the members sometimes got discouraged. But the one that is faring a little better is the women's group. But it's April who is giving it her all. And who's that? I asked. He continued. April is a colleague who arrived about three weeks ago. She said that she was from the women's commission. April is living in Daniela Lucia's home and all the women in town adore her. I said goodbye and told him that I was going to stay in the church. I asked him where Doña Elalucha lived. On the edge of town that overlooks the hill, he said. I left. But instead of going to the church, I continued walking. There was only one hut on the side of the hill, so I assumed that this was Doña Elalucha's house. I waited a while. The door opened and at first a shadow. Then, in the light of the full moon, it became a woman. Good evening, Maria, I said. She was stunned. After a while, she bent down and grabbed the stone and said, My name is not Maria. My name is April. While keeping an eye on the stone in her hand, I spoke to her slowly. My name is Elias. I am from the Investigation Commission. I'm investigating what happened to a woman named Maria, who disappeared from the town of Enterseras. Her husband is very worried. Without letting go of the stone, she said, I don't know the town of Enterseras, nor Maria, or her husband, Henaro. I hadn't said that her husband's name was Henaro. After a long silence, she said firmly, now grasping at a stick with the other hand, I'm not going to let anyone take me anywhere. I did not come here to take anyone anywhere. I'm just investigating, I said, and then I left. I returned to headquarters. At the entrance, where the horses were tied up, Sub Marcos was smoking his pipe. He hugged me, offered me a coffee, and we sat on a log. Lieutenant Colonel Jose was there. I told them everything. It turned out that Maria, or April, had been mistreated by her husband, Henaro. He was jealous, and he did not let her participate. When Henaro found out that she was to be appointed to the committee in the women's group, he hit her. She complained to the town assembly, but they failed to reach an agreement and nothing changed. April argued that it was her right to participate in society and to choose a partner freely, that it was enshrined in the women's revolutionary law, and explained that she had left because she was tired of being treated like a dog and couldn't take it anymore. She went to Tres Cruzes because she had met Doña Elalucha at the women's meeting and she knew that she would support her. She knew that it was an offence to claim that she was from the Women's Commission, but it was the only thing she could think of to allow her to enter the town. April would accept her punishment for lying, but she was not going to return to be mistreated. She was a Zapatista and she was behaving like one. 
When I finished my report, the submarcos told me, well, it's a surprise. I met Henero at a meeting, and he spoke well and seemed very Zapatista. I said to him, anyone can be a Zapatista for a while. He shook his head. How long does it take then to be a Zapatista? He asked me as he helped me saddle the mule. Sometimes it takes more than 500 years, I told him. In the case of women, there is a long way to go, said the colonel. A long way to go, said Sub Marcos. I speak with Rosa Luz Perez about the women's struggle within the Zapatista movement. Rosa Luz lived and worked in a Zapatista community for many years. Throughout this episode, she shares some of her experiences and speaks about the revolution within the revolution. She tells us how Zapatista women have challenged community structures, changed gender roles, fought oppressions, and how they have transformed and continue to shape their everyday lives. Passionately, she explains how women played a central role in creating the most important Zapatista laws, the Women's Revolutionary Law and the Agrarian Law, and she points to the connection of land and women's rights. She speaks about a world where many worlds fit, where people of all identities can thrive, and so much more. So tune in for a valuable lesson on solidarity, community, feminism, and empowerment. Rosa Luz, I wanted to start by asking you how you got involved in Indigenous women's struggles and what were your first impressions of the Zapatista movement? I first got involved in the struggle of the Zapatista movement in 1995, when the government revealed the identity of Subcomandante Marcos. It was a very important moment because the war and an offensive against the Zapatista communities was once again triggered after the uprising. So, an important solidarity campaign took place nationally. People started organizing spontaneously from many corners of Mexico and solidarity caravans were organized. It was at this time that I arrived in Chiapas. Suddenly, when we arrived in a Zapatista community, a barrier of Zapatista women came out and told us we couldn't go through. It was a very strong image for us coming from the city, of those women that we had always seen as being oppressed. At this moment, these women, with all their strength, were telling us that we could not pass into their community. And they were alone. There were no men in the community at the time. 
That first impression really left a mark in me. That look, that initial look of strength, organization and dignity. I think it was something that marked all of us who came in that caravan. And it made me curious to want to understand what their struggle was about. And why were those particular women involved? Who were they? I didn't know what I could learn from these women. But from that moment on, like many others in civil society, we got involved in the work, in communities within a context of war, where everything was in a state of emergency, and the Zapatista communities opened their doors to civil society to participate in education, health and human rights. That's how many of uh, people of civil society came to communities and got involved in this everyday construction work within the villages. And I think it was a unique and very beautiful experience of those early years. How interesting. So your first meeting was, as you said, directly with the women, um, because I imagine the men were away at the time. Were they involved in the conflict, perhaps? At that moment, the men were in the cornfields or doing other work on their farms. It is the women who stay at home in the community. And I think this also gives us an image of women as the guardians of the community. Could you give us some historical background from what you know around the Zapatista women and their movement? What was their life like before the 94 uprising? So after this solidarity caravan arrived, we stayed in the community and I asked what I could do to support their struggle. They told me that if I wanted to help with anything, I could train young people as community teachers. So that was my job over the next five years. And from this work, I witnessed much of the everyday life of the people. And perhaps I now understand a little about their history and women's aspirations. I think it is very important to understand that the Zapatistas are Mayan peoples and also their communities come from a long history of struggle for the land. They are organized Zapatista communities that come from a first emancipation that took place in the 70s, which was a massive struggle for land. Like most of the regional indigenous communities, they worked as indentured servants in Chiapas, which meant that they were workers in a plantation under conditions of semi-exploitation. Both men and women, men in the fields 
and women worked in the landowners' houses or were left in their own communities. And that gave rise to the plantation system, a division of labor by gender, men in the fields, immigration outside the community, and women in charge of the community, in charge of upbringing and everything that is necessary for life to be possible. And in addition, the women worked in domestic labor and child-minding for the landowner. And all this produces an entire cultural framework and an important division of labor that I think the Zapatistas have been dismantling over many years of struggle. And this is not so easy to do. We are talking about women living in a system of a division of labor where domestic work, childcare and community survival falls mainly on their shoulders. And that's a job that starts at 3 in the morning and ends at 10 p.m. at night. They are the first to get up and the last ones to fall asleep. And that makes an important difference in their physical health. In addition, the fact that they have to stay at home and in the community all the time has also la led to the fact that it is men who leave the community and the men who are normally bilingual and the women are monolingual. In this period, it is the men who have access to a circle of contacts, be it in the city or with government projects. This allows the men to be recognized by local government circles as the heads or representatives of the communal lands. It positions men as the decision makers, from which women have been historically excluded in indigenous communities. And that usually also led to women being outside the indigenous assembly where decisions are made. So we're talking about a very complicated historical context that has somehow placed men in decision-making spaces and leaves women responsible for the children and the community in general. And I think it's very important to understand this in order to appreciate all that the Zapatistas have had to do, the trajectory they have had to, to follow in order to break these internal and external bonds of oppression because it is something that the community has deeply internalized but it also comes from the outside. So with that insight into the heavy load and the complexities of the lives of indigenous women in 500 years of colonialism, can you tell us 
how they went about creating this women, women's revolutionary law in the Zapatista movement, which became public in 94. When the Zapatista uprising takes place, the Zapatistas rise up with two symbolic banners. One represents the land, and the other one is the women's revolutionary law. There were other laws, but those two are the most important. When I say that it is very important to understand the context, it is because this women's revolutionary law is declared by the Zapatistas so that more women can participate in the struggle, to open up more spaces for them to participate, for those indigenous women to have the necessary autonomy to make decisions about their political participation and also decisions on how to live their lives. But I think something that seems even more important to me than this law is the process prior to this revolutionary law. That process has more to do with the origins of the actual organization, the EZLN, or the Zapatista Army, has repeatedly said that there was a revolution within the revolution. By understanding the origins of that revolution has to do with the first Zapatista women who became involved in the Zapatista struggle. These first women, who had no choice but to participate as military women in the EZLN military organization, they crossed new terrain so that today other women can participate differently within the Zapatista organization. And I think these first women involved in the struggle broke the mold, transgressed many obstacles within their communities, within their families, as has been documented in many interviews with the first women soldiers. They had to overcome many obstacles within their families, their community, and within the same organization in order to be in a position from where they were listened to. So, the fact that in 1993, the women managed to get their organization to draft a law, however simple it was, a revolutionary law for women, is the result of all this effort that those first women had to make by breaking these old schemes. Not only this, but also in the work they engaged in, in working with the same communities and inviting them to participate in the organization. This work done by these women led to the creation of the first women's meetings where women had to question for the first time their history, their gender status, and be able to understand 
why their gender status was politically motivated. Then, these first women get involved in a war, which is a bizarre role for an indigenous woman. For a woman to agree to be part of a war implies that she is accepting that her children be involved in a war, that everything she has protected for centuries, being the guardians of the community, being responsible for the life in the community, is put at stake. So that's what I mean by a bizarre role for an indigenous woman, getting involved in a military struggle. For these women to have agreed to engage in a military structure before 94 involved a whole lot of work that could have been done only between women and between women who understand their own gender status. Well, that's the background of the revolutionary women's law. It is the public face of the work prior to 94, which began since the 1980s. That's true. And it also shows us the seriousness of the situation in which they had to make a tough decision after a lengthy and deep process. Can you comment a little on the role that women have played in the recovery of territory and in creating autonomous lands? As I mentioned already, the Zapatistas rise up with two principal banners. The land belongs to those who work it, and indigenous women's rights. I would say that they are the two major pillars in the Zapatista struggle. They haven't put it quite like this, but it's what we are learning from the path they have followed. And I think the two things are closely linked, because in the end, the land makes life possible. They are people that came from a trajectory of struggle for the land. But life is possible because we can be a community. And we can be a community because we have the land at the center of life. That is, even with the autonomy and the resistance that the Zapatistas have built, all of it would not be possible if it weren't for the indigenous farming communities that produce their own food. And that's what allows them to really be a community. That is what allows them to build autonomy and that is what allows women to continue to enjoy a viable life in the community. Which, after all, I feel that a viable community life is the Zapatista Autonomy Project. And all this is possible because a territory exists. I also think that for women, in some testimonies I collected, the recovery of the land was very important because this allowed them first 
to free themselves from the work of the landowner's farm. But in addition, this meant that men did not have to migrate. This allows men to stay in the community and for men to enjoy a life within that community. It also begins to change the division of labor by gender. Because if men are present in the community, they can hold government posts within their community, like the posts that exist within Zapatista autonomous structures. These posts now exist because they have land, land from which they can live off. This was unthinkable for many communities before the uprising, as communities were like dormitories, where men had to go work outside or where they had to work on the land of the wealthy owner to get their own food. So in the Zapatista project, the division of labor by gender and the role of women and men in the community has been changing little by little. Could you tell us a little bit about how this has been carried out in practice since the uprising? I think it was a process. Perhaps this process has to do with the progress in women's participation in political positions, autonomous positions, military positions. We are talking about communities in which women did not originally participate in the assemblies. And a first step to being in the Zapatista organization is to include women in the local assemblies. This was a first step towards greater participation of women in decision-making. Then came participation in the pre-war military positions. After the war came women's participation in civil autonomy positions and everything that has to do with autonomy. Then, with the Zapatista Good Governance Committees, came women's participation in those committees, in government structures and political structures. It happened little by little. At the start, there was a small percentage of women. And I think it was more or less from the good governance committees in their second year of existence that a law was passed that there be parity in political authorities. So we are already talking about another level of participation in policy and decision-making structures. I think that all this has been a very important benchmark, especially for young Zapatista women. Young Zapatista women no longer have had to fight to open up these spaces for participation. That is, those spaces are already open to them. And this is creating a new generation of women, very different from the women of 25 or 26 years ago or more, like the first women in the movement 30 years ago. So I think this is constantly transforming and changing everyday life as well. 
because in order for a woman to take part in local government committees, she has to delay the age of marriage. As women have access to more information, they have access to being women in a different way within their community. In other words, there is no longer a single profile of women which before was that of a mother and the caregiver of the home and community. But now there is a range of possibilities of being a woman within the same community. A woman can now be a health promoter, she can have a political post, she can be a video promoter or a teacher. All this gives you a range of possibilities that also revolutionizes the thinking of younger women. It has been very important in the transformation of women's daily lives. This has also created an awareness of different ways of living, of being a woman. But I also think that the whole Zapatista process has been a process of realizing that there are different forms of relations. Before, communities had the relationship with the government, with the church, and now they have a relationship with the wider world, with different ways of thinking, different ways of being. So that means nowadays, Zapatista women can decide who they marry. Is this how it is in other indigenous communities? The first women's law says that women can decide who to marry. And that law becomes less necessary each time because it is increasingly a concrete reality in each community. And not only can Zapatista women decide who they marry, but whether they want to marry or not, whether they want to be single mothers or get married or get divorced. That was something very interesting from the first cases that the good governance committees resolved in the area where I worked. I saw many non-Zapatista couples that came to solve their problems with the Zapatistas because the young people wanted to get divorced. But in their community, they were not allowed. They thought that if they went to the Zapatista authorities with the Good Governance Committee, they would be backed up and be able to divorce. That's very interesting to me, as the Zapatistas also became references for non-Zapatista communities for young people from non-Zapatista communities. Well, in the urban world in which most of us from the Western world live in, women are accustomed to a style of feminism with more emphasis on individual rights. You've already told us a bit about how indigenous women's lives are like, that they are a very important nucleus for the community in food production. And what would you see as the main differences between Western feminism and the Zapatista women's movement? Well, 
I would say that one of the main differences between the individual versus the collective is that for a long time Western feminism fought for equal rights between men and women. But often it was a certain type of feminism, as it also focused more on women as individuals. I think that for Zapatista women, with this long journey they have undertaken and all the changes they have achieved, this is rooted in an initial collective aspiration. In many of the testimonies gathered in the first interviews, they say that they were involved in the Zapatista struggle to change the conditions of their family, of their communities, and also to change their own conditions. In other words, this brought about change for them as well. It was also an opportunity for them to escape their horizon, their destiny, which they didn't want to be in. As women, they were not allowed to escape their set destinies before the uprising. But they also said that by taking the step of trying to change this destiny, they were taking a step for other women. I think the motivation behind Zapatista women always comes from their collective aspiration. The construction of autonomy and of the Zapatistas themselves has a structure where individuation stems from the collective work. As women grow up, they are empowered. They have a voice from participating in the construction of the collective, and you can see this with the newer generations. You now see 15-year-old girls talking to an auditorium of 2,000 people with such strength and the historical burden they carry. The individual is not put first to then achieve some in impacts for the community. But the communal pushes the individual to grow and do better. I think this has been one of the most valuable lessons I have learned from the trajectory of those women. Could you talk to us a bit about the women's collective work? Much of the work of these women's groups began in the years prior to the uprising, from groups organized by the diocese. These specific women's spaces were very important because they were the first spaces that created an opening that meant women could travel from one community to another more freely. Women in the communities knew how to take advantage of these diocesan networks 
of working with women to meet their own goals, to shape their own interests, which later on were more political interests and also allowed them to become involved in Zapatismo. So we could say that women's collectives played a part in the history of community organizing. And throughout the construction of autonomy, women have also created several spaces only for women to address their needs around raising children, around their specific needs as health promoters, and so on. Not only have there been collective workspaces, but women's assemblies where women's issues are solely addressed. Within the area of health, there has also been a lot of work on reproductive rights. There are clinics, for example in La Garucha, which are especially for women. I think all this also permeates into the vision of Zapatista autonomy. We are talking about the liberation of women, brought about by women who have had a heavy historical burden, who have seven or eight children. We are talking about women that are viewed as oppressed by Western feminism. It is these oppressed women who have taken steps towards building the liberation of younger women. And I think it's a very important message. From my perspective, I see all these women as the protagonists of a very complex system of community transformation. It's those protagonists who, from a Western feminist perspective, can be seen as oppressed women. So, it's, very, it's a very important difference. It's like a paradox. It is these women who are apparently oppressed who are building a path to liberation. I just want to explain a little to our listeners um, because some of these women's collectives that are part of the San Cristobal Diocese of the Catholic Church in Chiapas are part of a group called CODIMUJ, which is short for, in Spanish, Coordinación Diocesana de Mujeres. That means the Diocesan Women's Coordination Group. And this is the only exclusive women's area in the whole of the Catholic Church globally. So could you tell us about CODIMUJ and the role that it has played in women's organizing in Chiapas? When I talk about these collectives in the diocese, it is something historical. This all begins before the uprising. I think that each region was organized in different ways. But a very important role in some regions were groups of women that were formed by pastorate workers 
by nuns who also fought within the Catholic Church itself and within the Diocese of San Cristobal. In other words, they also opened a door to work exclusively with women because of the empathy they generated with women in communities. They also had to fight within the Diocese of San Cristobal to be allowed to run these groups of women. That seems very important to me. In these women's groups, once they are created in communities, when a community starts organizing, you can sow the seed, but you no longer know what will happen to that seed. So, I believe that all this work done by the Church, all this work centered on them having access to communication and making collective reflections. That allowed them to organize themselves, to get involved in Zapatism, and later to organize their own autonomy, not with church groups, but with their own groups from the autonomous process. I think it is very valuable work, but that work originally carried out by these pastorate workers of peace from the diocese, the Zapatista women collected these seeds and then formed their own collectives within their autonomous structure. That's what happened to us with everything. We worked a little on education and then the Zapatistas arrived and grabbed it with their hands and modified it to their needs. Yes, that's a, a very interesting story and it's very unique as well. Um, I know you have told us uh, some of the lessons and your learnings with the Zapatistas and that's one of the focuses of this podcast series, to point out what we can all take away from the Zapatista experience and apply it to our lives, our struggles. Um, so what lessons most stand out to you? What do you think are the main lessons we can learn from the Zapatista women's movement for women in Ireland or anywhere in the world? I think that for me, the most important lessons to understand and that we need to reflect on from the Zapatista teachings is first, how do you make yourself into a better human based on the construction of the collective? That's something very important to me. And I think that's how the Zapatistas were built. They had a concern and then took steps towards collective construction. They have grown and opened the way for new generations of women. I would say a second lesson is learning by doing. Every step taken by the Zapatistas has been a practical step for the next step. Every gathering or event they have organized has been an exercise for the next one. All the time they are practicing and all the time they are doing. To do it, it takes collective will, above all. 
rather than a lot of resources. It's not that resources aren't important, but I think at the heart of its construction is the collective will and how to do it, how to learn and do together. For me, I think these are the two most important lessons. Apparently, you can build something out of nothing. I feel like they don't have any obstacles. Like you can build out of thin air if you have this collective will and if you are sure about what your dreams are and what you want to pursue. For me, these are the three most important lessons. Well, thanks to Rosa Luz for such a thought-provoking and personal insight into the Zapatista women's movement. Learning about how these strong indigenous women have overcome so many obstacles and continue to do so is very inspirational. Bettering ourselves to build our collectives, learning by doing, not being afraid of making mistakes and constructing our collective dreams now. I feel that's what the Zapatista women are inviting us to do with their European tour and to shake us awake and get to it. Are you up for it? Thank you for joining us. We hope you enjoyed this episode. You can find a list of related links and resources in our show notes for this episode. We'd love to hear your feedback. You can reach us at Galway Feminist Collective on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and also via our email address, Collective at gmail.com. <laughs>